0: Welcome to The Burning Word, a podcast that invites you to return to the word and encounter God again. I'm your host, John Perrine, and this is our fifth episode of our study of the Song of Songs, Sex, and the Search for Intimacy. And In this episode, we finally are gonna to return to this cultural conversation about consent. What does our culture say when it comes to their vision for what sex is meant to be? How is consent sort of this baseline goal, aspiration, and yet how is consent failing us, failing us especially when it comes to the vision that the Song of Songs is putting forward of what it actually looks like to belong to another. I'm going to try to wrestle with some tough questions this episode, really get into the weeds of what is going on, and especially explore the Song of Songs and the vision it's been painting for us. So let's get started. So if you've been tracking with us, this is the episode where I'm going to try to bring as much of this together as I possibly can. I am not here pretending like I have all the answers when it comes to sex, but I do think there's a sense in which if you pay attention culturally, if you really slow down and reflect on what it is we're saying that sex is meant to be, what the culture is expressing when it comes to sex. A number of problems surface. And one of the most pressing of them is this question of consent. So in order to highlight this question of consent, I just briefly, this may seem like a random exercise for some of you, or I may just be painting the obvious for others. But briefly, I want to cover the history of how we got here. How is it that today, in the year 2021, that we think about sex, that we're talking about sex, the way that we're talking about sex, that we are conceptualizing sex. I mean, what was the journey or the trajectory that got us here? So most sociologists are really clear that a sexual revolution has, in fact, taken place. Any historian will tell you we definitely have shifted what it is we think about sexuality. But in order to understand that shift, you really have to go back to World War II. And after World War II, There was this sense of immense disruption, but also this sense of immense possibility. In fact, in the United States especially, there was a booming post World War II economy. There was this exploding middle class that were often leaving urban centers, heading out to the suburbs. There was a really strong sense of safety, even though, of course, you had these rising threats of the Cold War and uh, the sort of looming nuclear holocaust hanging over everyone's head, those small issues, you know. But the sense of security and stability after a world that had been at war allowed for this rising tide of social change and the openness to reconsider where freedom and liberation and revolution might need to take place. So a couple significant factors that have really shifted how it is we think and practice sex when it comes to not only the United States, but really all of the Western world. First, most often associated with the sexual revolution, is actually the invention of contraception. If you think about it, contraception, though it did obviously exist all the way back to ancient times, really took off in the 1960s when the pill became an effective means by which to regulate pregnancy out of sex. So starting in the 1960s, All of a sudden, sex no longer always had the possibility, the looming possibility that pregnancy could occur. Sex, therefore, became much more mechanistic, became much more pleasure-oriented, and became much freer, uh, more freely accessed and associated with anyone that you're interested in having sex with. Okay, so contraception is in 1960. Divorce laws in 1969. California is going to become the first state to offer no-fault divorce. So this was monumental that up until 1969, if you were married, unless there was a clear and pressing legal issue that gave you justification to end your marriage, there really wasn't many options for you to get out of the marriage that you had committed yourself to. But in 1969, California is going to initiate this chain reaction that in the last 50 years has exploded. The reason why we have so many divorces today, somewhere between 40 and 50%, depending on what social statistic you read, is because we now have the option for no-fault divorce. You can divorce if you no longer wish to be married to another person. That's 1969. Okay, to step back just a little bit further, in the 1940s and 50s, so before the 60s, before the big boom of the sexual revolution, there's this man named Alfred Kinsey, who has been popularized by the HBO show Masters of Sex. Somewhat disturbingly, Kinsey was a biologist who realized there was an opportunity, a scientific opening, to do extensive laboratory research on the mechanisms of sexuality. And so he was going to do groundbreaking studies on sexual behaviors between couples. He specifically would lean in to examining the underexamined practices, the sensations, the feelings. So he then releases in 1948, "Sexual Behavior in the Human Male," and in 1953, "Sexual Behavior in the Human Female," which are also known as the Kinsey Reports. And these are going to provoke immense controversy, but they're going to open up this conversation that had never really been had before in the scientific community of what was taking place in sex. What did sex actually look like? What was how do you describe sex? What are best practices in sex? Uh, what's actually taking place in the sex life of American? couples, and this is going to be followed by a number of unprecedented studies uh, all the way up until, I want to say the late 1990s, there was another big study that came out that was called uh, Sex Life in America, and it got everyone talking again, but the main thing to know about Alfred Kinsey is that looking back now, we really are no longer now doing the practices that he was doing in the 1940s and 50s because a lot of it is dangerously unethical and strange. I mean, why is it that it's so hard to study sexuality? Because this is something that is so delicate and so intimate to put it into any sort of fabricated environment immediately compromises the integrity, the relational integrity of what sex is meant to be. And yet this is precisely what Kinsey does And even now, most would say a lot of his findings are controversial at best and dismissible at most. And yet it's just highlighting there's this movement taking place, nineteen forties, nineteen fifties, nineteen sixties. So right around this same time, another immensely significant figure for sociologists of the sexual revolution is going to be Hugh Hefner. In nineteen fifty-three, Hugh Hefner is going to release the first nude magazine cover of Marilyn Monroe that's going to explode uh, not only into his magazine Playboy, but into a pornography industry of which Hugh Hefner is kind of seen as the icon. I mean, you're getting this sense in which sex is opening up from the security and stability of the 1950s to the growing sense post-World War II that things maybe need to change. Practices should be reevaluated, And now we not only have sexual behavior between couples being talked about quite rigorously, we have contraception that allows everyone to have sex uh, with little thought about pregnancy. We have no-fault divorce laws that if you get married, you could get divorced, even if you had been married, to go back to exploring sexuality in whatever manner you desire. And then finally, in 1972, in Roe versus Wade, the legalization of abortion is going to provide another step, another incentive. And of course, I understand abortion is a hot political topic, but you have to see it in 1972 as one of the culminating steps on the road to revolution. The goal, the vision that is being championed is that sexuality is free and that practice of sexuality can take place in whatever expressive way an individual desires, so long as there's generally some sense in which sex is safe, sex is not harming another person's rights to be free themselves, is not violating any other individual. In that sense of a container, you just get this open-ended possibility, and most stories of sexual revolution will culminate in the Oberfell versus Hodges case on same-sex marriage that would legalize same-sex marriages in 2015 as sort of the culminating movement moment in the LGBTQ struggle for legal recognition in their own sexual practices this this is the moment this is the revolution in some sense although of course i understand there's lots of conversations and ongoing struggles taking place in the courts today in some sense a sociologist would say that is the arc of the revolution the revolution had been accomplished yet yet even as i say the revolution had been accomplished there's some challenges that are going to arise that begin to push back on the open-ended vision of revolution and sexual expression so one obvious challenge that comes to mind is the commercialization of sex the reality in which sex can sell products. And in fact, if sex is now permissible, if sex is now expressive, then really sex can be used to sell almost anything. And in fact, sex was selling a lot. Sex was not only selling cars, sex was not only selling cigarettes, sex was selling pornography, sex was selling prostitution, sex was selling global trafficking and increasing reports of child exploitation, particularly across the globe. Then in the 1980s and 1990s, the discovery of STDs, but particularly the invasion. And as someone who was born in the 1990s, but who wasn't really cognizant of what was taking place, it's sort of hard for me to imagine, but I hear it when I read the literature. Late 1980s, early 1990s, The AIDS pandemic was terrifying. It was really freaking people out. There was no medical options. There were no medical treatments for it. And it really did look like it was a plague in the same way that COVID today just can terrorize you if you think too much about how susceptible any of us could be. COVID, the fear around COVID, the intensity around COVID, that's what was taking place with AIDS. And it was causing great concern among the revolution by forcing people to ask the question, is something going wrong here? Are there challenges that we haven't thought through? Are there obstacles if diseases can be passed so easily between sexual partners? And if these diseases cause permanent autoimmune deficiency disorders that's going to plague you, if not kill you, because of your Participation with another partner who may or may not have revealed to you, who may or may not have known themselves that they had this disease. I mean, it was terrifying. In addition to commercialization, the AIDS crisis, you're going to also have increasingly in the early 2000s the critiques by radical feminists who are noting that a decreased emphasis on monogamy is largely benefiting men and is largely coming at a woman's expense. Women were not yet in the position where they had the freedom to wield societally, structurally, economically all of the freedoms that a man would have in getting to leave behind his home, leave behind his wife, potentially leave behind his kids. And so feminists understandably are saying, I'm not sure this actually is benefiting us, the sexual revolution. In addition to these critiques, you have a rise in rates of anxiety, depression, and suicide across the Western world. That's debated. It's tricky to map. I mean, you especially see it take place when social media is introduced in 2007. But an even more fascinating statistic uh, that, again, is sort of hard to pin down. Most statistics around sex are pretty hard to pin down. But there seems to be this pretty consistent and clear correlation that as social media has arisen, In the last 10 years among teenagers, as we've been tracking Gen Z. Interestingly, sexual activity among teenagers has dropped, mostly indicating from anything I've read on it that because teenagers are participating more in the virtual realities of social media, they are actually more intimidated by real life physical encounters. And so there's this strange sense in which today teenagers are participating in less sex, that sex itself has become a bit of an obstacle to the true vision or goal of the sexual allure of life online, which is influence, likes, and followers. So we have a real challenge when it comes to sex. And so the best, the best that our secular culture has been able to do, and I'm, I'm really trying to honor the fact that I don't know from a secular standpoint how you respond to those tension points. I see why culture has fought so hard for freedom when it comes to sexual expression. I see why it's so appealing to hear stories of those who have felt repressed for whatever sexual identity They have experienced who have felt neglected, who have felt shamed, who have felt dismissed, who have felt isolated. And I see the powerful pull that comes when you can put forth this vision that says, what if we could embrace you as you are? What if you could be free to love who you love? And what if love is love is love is love is love? I understand why love is love is such a powerful, open-ended, sweeping vision that seems to speak to the heart of intimacy. And yet... And yet, my challenge, as I've really tried to wrestle with this question, as I've tried to wrestle with it, both as a Christian and as someone who understands what it's like to live in the 21st century as an American, the challenge is that the best direction secular culture can give in this open-ended vision of freedom for sexual expression is that consent and legality are the only barriers to practicing your preferred sexual expression. So if you're tracking with me, consent is what we have. That's it, that's the one line. And so all of the Me Too movement, all of the backlash and explosion that has surfaced around sexual abuse, resistance to systems of power, particularly holding men to account, it's all good, it's all necessary because the line of consent was crossed. But as I highlighted in our first episode, in the search for intimacy, the challenge is that consent, while clear in some, particularly in physical violent acts of sexual abuse, consent proves to be a rather unreliable ally when it comes to sexual expression. So here I'm borrowing from the New York Times, and the New York Times this summer released an article on June 21st, 2021, that was reviewing literature about consent. The article was titled, "Yes." No, maybe so, a generation of thinkers grapples with notions of consent. So, here's just a few lines that I'm going to pull from it to give you the sense of where the article goes. One highlights Amia Shirinovson, who writes in her forthcoming study, The Right to Sex Sex is no longer morally problematic or unproblematic. It is instead merely wanted or unwanted. Isn't that good? That kind of gives us the guiding principle right now for our culture of sex. Do you want sex? Or do you not want sex? It's either wanted or it's not wanted. But think about that notion of wanting sex. Think about how problematic that is from a gendered standpoint in that the stereotype, the stereotype of gendered standards around sex is that men always want sex and women, understandably, have a far more ambiguous relationship with desire, with the mechanisms of arousal, with how sex is or isn't emotionally attached to their bodies. Now, immediately, I want to point out, I don't think those stereotypes are completely true. I think men are far more emotionally intuitive around sex than they're given credit for. Yet, this is sort of brought to a point in the acclaimed French writer Annie Ernaud, who in the article is highlighted for her recent memoir, A Girl's Story, and it quite literally took her 60 years, 60 years to write about the trauma of her first sexual experience. And this is Ernaud's words. She says, It was so difficult to write about because it was so complex. Had it been rape, I might have been able to talk about it earlier, but I never thought about it that way. She goes on to say, I gave in, so to speak, out of ignorance. I don't even remember saying no. And oh, as I hear that line, I I just want to hang my head in my hands and weep. This is the conundrum when it comes to notions of wanting or not wanting sex. When sex is just free and out there and expressive, how good a grasp do we have on our own feelings, sensations, desires? I mean, how clear are we really, even at the best of times, on what it is we want in any given moment? So the New York Times article is going to continue and say this, so many writers tell this story of losing possessions of their bodies worn down since childhood by touching, teasing, male aggression. Here's another quote. I was very confused for a long time about who my body belonged to, Phoebus writes in Girlhood. If someone wanted my body, I tended to give it to them. Here's another quote. Springora, who had a relationship in her teens with a notorious older writer, says, I felt like a doll, lacking all desire, who had no idea how her own body worked, who had learned only one thing, how to be an instrument for other people's games. That's the end of the quote. When you read the article, when you put these books together, the New York Times summarizes by saying, we have to complicate this conversation around sexual violence. We need language for a spectrum of harm. We need in-between words. We need to learn how to say and hear not just an enthusiastic yes or no, but maybe. After all, sex ought to be understood as a capitalist free exchange not something we extract from someone else, but something we make and experience together, a conversation. Out of frustration with a word, calls for more words, better words, from a suspicion of narratives, a profusion. To consent, to feel together, perhaps the root holds true. And in these works, an argument is being advanced about how to proceed in the spirit of exploration and uncertainty. That's the end of the New York Times quote. That to me captures a necessary acknowledgement of where we are. We are in a place of exploration and uncertainty when it comes to sex. And so as I've been asking this whole series, what I want to know is, do we really trust ourselves when it comes to sex? Do we trust our culture when it comes to sex? When I read that New York Times article, I just feel like asking, does anybody know what's going on right now when it comes to sex? Like, is anyone paying attention? Those to me as memoirs, as great and important wrestlings with honest accounts, which are incredibly important. They don't speak to me as authorities. They speak to me as great laments of uncertainty and pain and loss. And when I think about my children, let alone when I think about my own heart. I'm just longing for guidance to be given. I'm longing for a vision to be mapped out. I'm longing, of course, not for some return to a repressive or puritanical or overly conservative regime. I am not trying to live in naive fantasies or fairy tales, yet I hunger And thirst for the God who created me to give me direction when it comes to my sexuality. And so in that vein, if we've highlighted the question of consent, I think there is a vision in the Song of Songs that offers a contrasting paradigm to consent. And that vision comes as mutual covenanted belonging. So let's return to Song of Songs chapter 5. If you recall, I realize the challenge in Song of Songs is that you bounce around a little bit uh, because it's just not straightforward. These are songs. There's a beauty. There's a poetry. There's an ambiguity. There's a bit of an enigma. And so as I've been working through it, we went in episode three to the terrors of the night. And if you remember, in the terrors of the night, the woman wakes up in chapter three from this dream. Her beloved is missing. So she goes looking for him in the night. And as she's looking for him, she can't find him. She comes across the watch, she asks them where he is, and then all of a sudden he appears, and things are okay. Well, then in chapter five, the woman is going to have yet another evening dream-like encounter where the man approaches something seems to be happening she's sort of pausing and then by the time she's ready to engage him he's gone so she once again goes looking for him and this time instead of the watch being some neutral presence the watch are instead going to hurt her they're going to beat her it's kind of terrifying and she's going to end with this warning to the daughters of jerusalem be careful do not awaken love before you're ready before it so desires in their response, I'm now picking up verse 9 in chapter 5, the daughters of Jerusalem are going to ask, what is your beloved more than another beloved, almost most beautiful among women? What is your beloved more than another that you thus adjure us? Right? So you've got the sense where the daughters of Jerusalem in verse 9 are saying, what's so special about your beloved? Why does your beloved warrant so much franticness, so much pursuit, so much anxiety, and yet also so much desire? Why would you go through this? Basically, is what the daughters of Jerusalem ask, which I think could be a fair enough question that some of us are even wrestling with today. And this is what the lover is going to respond with. She's going to say in verse 10, My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. She's going to go on and keep describing him. She'll say, His head is the finest gold, his locks are wavy, black as raven, his eyes are like doves, his cheeks are like beds of spices. His arms are rods of gold, his body is polished ivory, his legs are alabaster columns, his appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars, his mouth is most sweet, he is altogether desirable. So if you've been tracking with us, she basically walks us through a wasp. Even though he's not there, as she's being pressed with this question, why is it that you desire your beloved so much? She's going to lovingly, attentively move through this beautiful description of how great her beloved is. I think there's something even here to be noted that as she pauses to reflect, it is the wonder, it is the beauty. Do you see how these themes are coming together in our study of the Song of Songs? The desire for her beloved is drawn through his beauty, even against the terrors and the pressures of relationship. She sees in her beloved that which is desirable, that which is worthy of love, and in attentively describing that beauty to another, she's going to re-center, re-anchor herself on the image of the beloved that has captivated her heart. You see both how this is quite practical. This is quite literally, in real life, how you resist. The distractions, the complications, the pressures, and the disappointments of real life frustrations in love, but this is also very theological. There's a sense in which the woman is being asked, are you sure that God, the beloved, is the one who you should give your heart to? And inevitably, when she reflects, when she centers herself on the beloved, she sees God for the beauty and glory that God is. So in the drama of this encounter, I think there's a bit of a story taking place here. We're going to find in chapter six that once again, the daughters of Jerusalem are going to ask, where has your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where has your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? The implication would seem to be, wow, he really does sound incredible. We want to go find him with you. And the woman, the lover is now going to respond. This is verse two of chapter six. My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the bed of spices, to graze in the gardens and to gather lilies. The lover is going to respond in chapter six, verse two to three. And I think this is actually really important. So I'm going to slow down with this. Catch what the lover says. We would think in reading this song that the beloved has disappeared. The lover has no idea where the beloved is. She should at this point say something like, I don't know where my beloved is. Come help me find him. Come look in the cities or come search the hills and the valleys with me. But instead, strangely, unless we really ponder it, the lover is going to say, my beloved has gone down to his garden, to the bed of spices, to graze in the gardens and to gather lilies.'" What What is taking place? What why Why is the lover so confident that she was searching so frantically for so long for her beloved, seemingly not knowing where he was? And yet now, when questioned, all of a sudden it's like she knows exactly where he is. And the sexual connotation is that he has gone down to his garden, quite literally, to her body physically, to graze, to gather, to delight in her. I think this is where... We would be wise, as the early rabbis and early church were, to think theologically in this moment that it is significant that while the garden has represented the fertility and the beauty and the sensuality that is possible when a lover engages sexual intimacy with her beloved, I think there's something about her certainty in this moment, after the franticness of her search, that the certainty is that the beloved has actually been there for her this whole time. In fact, she knew, if she would slow down and reflect upon it, that the Beloved was always waiting for her in his garden. And in fact, if we think about it theologically, the garden, of course, is the place of intimacy between God and humanity. The, the garden is where relationship began. It is where relationship can be both ordered and organic. It can be structured and sensual. It can be intimate in the cool of the day. And it is where man and woman were able to stand naked and unashamed before their creator. And here, in this moment, for just a glimpse, as we so often get in the Song of Songs, the lover is returned to the garden with her beloved. And in this scene of intimacy, we can't help but ponder that God is waiting for us whenever we return to him. We know for all our frantic searching in the night that God has been waiting for us in the garden if we would but return to him. Is just a final theological side trail here, it's interesting. It's interesting. There's been a couple studies done on the Gospel of John, and one of the questions asked is whether when Mary Magdalene is the one who in John's Gospel pauses and lingers in the garden and of course mistakens the resurrected Jesus for the gardener of his garden. If we are not supposed to sense in John, of course, the playful theological imagery, not just of the Garden of Eden, That in Jesus' resurrection, the new garden has begun and is now going to grow and flourish out into the world. But if we're not also supposed to sense the playfulness with the song of songs, that the lover has gone searching for her beloved and she has now found him in the garden. That the lover has gone searching for her beloved and she has found him in the gardens, even though she does not recognize him yet. If all of that holds any weight, and maybe for you, anytime I've gone to the God piece here, it just distresses you, I understand. But if it does hold any weight, track with me then to verse 3. And this is the main invitation, the vision from this episode that I want to give. In verse 3, we find a phrase spoken by the lover that is repeated three times in the Song of Songs with a little bit of variation. We're going to see the second one. We've already covered the first. This phrase occurred in Song of Songs 2. It's reoccurring here in Song of Songs 6, and then it's going to show up one more time in Song of Songs 7. The phrase goes like this, and you will inevitably recognize it. The phrase is, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. And it ends, he grazes among the lilies. So in the sweep of this moment, in the sweep of the story, the tension that caused her to go looking in the middle of the night, the terrible pain and agony from the watch, The questioning from the daughters of Jerusalem, the description she offers of her beloved, then the certainty with which she returns to the sense. When they ask, Where is he to be found? she says, He's in the garden. To then come to this phrase, this moment, these phrases, when they occur, they seem to be a thematic coherence that are holding the Song of Songs together. We're meant to notice that they happen three times, and they're meant to guide us in the understanding of what is taking place in the relationship between the lover and the beloved. She says this radical notion, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. In the Hebrew, it quite literally is. I am the possession of my beloved and my beloved is the possession of me. I have to think here in ancient terms, ancient terms of masters and slaves, as uncomfortable as that might be for us, In ancient terms of ownership and possession, where if you owned something, it was absolute. You didn't trade it. You didn't barter it. This was your possession. It would take a fundamental altering of identity to take an object you possessed away from you. She sang so radically that not only she, as the woman, who in ancient times would have already been assumed to be the possession of her husband. Not only is she the possession of her husband, but far more radically, her husband is the possession of her. No one in the ancient world would have thought like that. No one would have naturally assumed that dynamic of reciprocity and relationality between a lover and their beloved. And yet, in the course of a relationship, of course it makes sense. Of course, the dynamic is there that in order for there to be equity and co-inhabitants, the sense in which your self commingles with their self, the sense in which, as the book of Genesis described, to become one flesh, there would have to be a sense. It almost becomes a theological necessity that when it comes to the union of sex in the covenant of marriage, what's happening is that your body, which you previously possessed to some degree i mean the bible would have pushed back maybe here at this point and said your body which is the possession owned by god and stewarded by you your body is now not only the possession of god but is actually the possession of another just as their body their self has become the possession of you this is some radical stuff relationship in this understanding is radical. I think for so many of us, the challenge in marriage is that we entered into this covenant and we did not realize the full extent to which our body would no longer be our own, just as we would be responsible now for another self, another person, another body. It was a lot of work to be responsible for myself, let alone for me now to have to take care of, to attend to, to help Flourish a whole nother being. And of course, as I say all of this, what I am deeply aware of pastorally, what I am deeply aware of personally, is that that sort of mutual possession is in fact terrifying if the other person is not to be trusted with your body. So, in the terrible stories of marital rape that take place, in the terrible breakdown of marriages, in honestly, just the terrible accounts of really bad sex lives in secular marriages, but then particularly in Christian marriages, what you find is that in in this sort of hyper-masculinized, hyper-patriarchal, hyper-paternalistic, sometimes hyper-feminist, I mean, anytime the mutual reciprocity becomes unbalanced, anytime someone seeks to possess for their own sake instead of also relinquishing themselves to be possessed, What you're going to find is a distortion that was never meant to exist in a mutual covenanted relationship of belonging. So this is where marriage is breaking down. This is where our relationships are becoming distorted. This is where the terrors of something like sexual abuse, very necessary conversations taking place around the Me Too movement, the necessary conversations taking place around Evangelical sexuality and how it's being practiced between those who hold to a theology of male headship and those who hold even to an egalitarian theology of marriage. I mean, this is where the rubber meets the road in our sex lives, in our marriages. Do we understand and pursue a Song of Songs 6 3 vision that I want to contend goes back to Genesis 2, a vision that says, I am my beloved's just as my beloved is mine? Or do we seek in some sort of slanted way to possess another without being possessed ourselves? To control another out of fear that they will control us? To reject another out of fear that we will be rejected? To resist another out of fear that we will be resisted? Clearly, I am not solving, nor am I intending to clarify all of the many pastoral care questions around how to navigate a bad marriage. If the marriage is bad, you need help, you need safety, you need to get out. Nor am I suggesting that there's some sort of perfect theology here. Like if you just agree with your spouse, are you my possession just as I'm your possession? That that somehow is going to lead to a healthy and flourishing sex life, it doesn't. But I think this baseline, this baseline vision is what has to orient us and what has to be the goal when it comes to our pursuit of intimacy with each other. Because if it isn't the goal, then what you find is ultimately love is a self-isolated, self-pursuing event. Ultimately, what you're going to find is that marriage is going to be cagey, it's going to be defensive, it's going to be a game of how much can I get with how little I can give, rather than a biblical vision in which the lover fully entrusts herself to the beloved by saying, I am my beloved, And my beloved is mine. So, if I haven't lost you yet in this passionate plea that we have to move beyond consent, we have to actually return to a biblical vision of mutual belonging, mutual covenanted belonging, then what I want to do is just take you through the rest of Song of Songs 6 to give you a picture of what it looks like when that mutual belonging is taking place. What does mutual covenanted ownership look like? Well, in verse 4 of chapter 6, the beloved is going to launch into another one of his wafts. We've experienced this before. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the details of it, but I'll just give you a flow. He's going to say, you are beautiful as Terzah, my love, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. Turn away your eyes from me, for they overwhelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes that have come up from the washing. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. There are sixty queens, eighty concubines, virgins without number, but my dove, my perfect one, is the only one, the only one of her mother, pure to her, who bore her, the young woman saw her and called her blessed. The queens and concubines also, they praise her. Who is this who looks like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? The beloved is doing his thing again, where he is attending, he is meticulously and carefully attending to the other half of himself, to the one fleshness of the beauty of his lover. Now, she is going to give this interesting response in verses 11 to 12. She's going to say, I went down to the nut orchard to look at the blossoms of the valley, to see whether the vines had budded, whether the pomegranates were in bloom. Before I was aware, my desire set me among the chariots of my kinsmen, a prince. What's interesting is the picture, the picture is subtle and beautiful and consistent with what we've received so far in the Song of Songs. There's the nature imagery that she's going down to the nut orchard to look at the blossoms of the valley to see whether the vines had budded. I mean, this is a very agricultural, beautiful scene of exploration in the springtime as new fruit is beginning to emerge. And yet, As I was working through Tremper Longman's commentary on this again, Longman notes that these images are euphemisms. What we see is that she is moving through this exploration of the sexuality of her beloved. There's the sense in which he has been attending to her patiently, slowly, passionately, working through the aspects of her beauty from the head all the way down. And she now goes into his orchard to explore the fruits which are budding there. And she says then in verse 12, before she even is aware of it, her desire is stirred. Now that final phrase where we're told, my desire set me among the chariots of my kinsmen, a prince. I just want to point out, this is one of those crazy verses. I think it's sometimes helpful for pastors, for Bible scholars to acknowledge most of the Bible we've got a pretty firm grasp on, but every now and then there's a verse where we just don't know what it's referring to and what's going on. There's this word, dab in the end of verse 12, and scholars are torn on whether or not dab is uh, supposed to be a name, or it's supposed to be a place, or it's supposed to be a God that we weren't aware of, or if it's This phrase of like, among my people, the prince, among my people, the chariot, it's very confusing. And so just to say at the end of verse 12, when it says, among the chariots of my kinsmen a prince, that makes the English translation sound like it really knows what it's talking about. It doesn't know what it's talking about. There's just this expression, before I was aware, my desire set me, aminas dab, and that's what we've got. But in the song, the point is not so much where she lands in verse 12, as much as the dynamics of attending dynamics of exploration, the dynamics in which if there is meant to be this vision of mutual belonging, then we have to be attentive, we have to be diligent, we have to be resilient in our pursuit of that which we care for. The body of your lover, the body of your beloved is entrusted to you as your possession. Rather than something to use for your own advantage, that body is meant to be loved, is meant to be brought into the fullness and flourishing of what it was intended to bear fruit to. And, and clearly, while the Song of Songs is giving us a very sexually evocative passion, what I love about the imagery in the Song of Songs is that the stylized and enigmatic and euphemistic way in which the images are playing with nature is that it highlights when it comes to attending to the love of our lover or beloved, we're meant to grow them. We're meant to use sex not just for a momentary thrill. Sex is meant to be the process of drawing out, flourishing in our one fleshness with the other. When I pursue sexuality with my wife, when my wife pursues sexuality with me, it is meant to be a pursuit that leads to flourishing. It's meant to be a pursuit that is actually enhancing and drawing out not just our love for each other, but all the love we have for God, for our world, for our neighbors, for our families, for our friends. Sex is meant to be an overflowing spring. And so it just continues to highlight the tragedy that occurs when the waters of sex become for our own thirst, become that which is simply meant to satiate or satisfy ourselves. Sex was never intended to be about momentary thrills or pleasure. Sex was always meant to be the intimate heartbeat of a garden that, when attended to properly, could lead. To abundant new life and flourishing, both in the physical act of procreation, but even more so in the procreative act of love bearing fruit out in our lives and in our world. So if I sound crazy, let me take you to the next. If that sounds too good to be true, let me take you to the next verse. This is Song of Songs 6.13. It's going to say this. It's a little out of the blue. All of a sudden, we're just thrown into this new scene. This is, in all likelihood, a new song. song says this, Return, return, O Shulamite. Return, return, that we may look upon you. And the second half of the verse says, Why should you look upon the Shulamite? As upon a dance before two armies. Now, when I first read that verse, I was immensely confused. I had no idea what was going on. But as you sit with this verse, this scene, the image of the song is that a dance is taking place. In fact, we've shifted camera angles and now the woman is dancing. She's in the middle of a dance. You catch that at the end of the verse when it says, as upon a dance before two armies. There's a sense in which the woman's beauty is fully on display in her dance. And yet the interesting textual insights are first that there's this invitation in the middle of the dance that the woman needs to turn. She needs to return, return so that we may look upon you. Her beauty is being shielded. Her beauty is being contained. And so the invitation is that the woman would turn to show, to reveal her beauty. And there's a little bit of a tension in the text between reveal her beauty to others. There's this plural, we may look upon you. Is it the daughters of Jerusalem who are saying that, who want to glimpse of her beauty? Is it just the crowd that she is dancing before? It's, it's sort of hard to say. What becomes clear in the second half of the verse is that the beloved is going to step forward and he's going to say, let me tell you the beauty and the wonder of this dance that you are beholding. And so in chapter seven, the following chapter, we're going to get yet another wasp and this wasp in chapter 7 verse 1 is going to start with the woman's feet and instead of starting with the head which is normally where it begins the wasp is going to work its way up the body in a reversal of the genre and is going to culminate in yet another passionate diligently attentive exploration of the woman by the beloved but before we get to chapter 7 I said there were two textual insights. The second is the name that we receive. This strange name that comes almost out of the blue, Shulamite. I've been highlighting in this study that there are a lot of literal scholars who have gotten quite fixated on who the Song of Songs is historically or literally referring to, and you've heard me at a number of points, resist that vein of interpretation. Here is the important reason why in this particular verse. This is the only time we get any indication of a name for the woman. And the name Shulamite could refer to either the actual woman herself, it could be her name, this could be she was known as Shulamite. It could be the goddess Shulamite of the Mesopotamia, who was the goddess sort of paralleled to Athena in Greek mythology, the goddess of war and the goddess of love. So now in this moment, uh, as Some scholars have argued in the cultic background, we're getting a mini snapshot of a poem that used to be for the goddess Shulamite, but has somehow snuck its way into the Song of Songs. I instead think that the naming is far more intentional here. The name Shulamite is the feminine version of the name Solomon. So Solomon will be mentioned three times in the Song of Songs. If you look at the occurrences of Solomon, They always seem to have this richly image-driven, semi-symbolic function where Solomon is not just Solomon. Solomon's name is being associated with grandeur, with royalty, with a wedding, with large sweeps of land as we're going to see in chapter 8. But in this moment, if Solomon is the name often attributed sort of behind the beloved, the sense of grandeur, of wisdom, of insight then here we get the woman's name, and her name is similarly Shulamite, Shulama. And in the feminine of Solomon, what you get a glimpse of that I'm not alone in suggesting is that the Song of Songs seems to be having this interpretive reading where if you sit with Solomon's name, Solomon, Shaloman, is Shalom. Solomon is quite literally the man of peace, and yet the peace there, Shalom, is not just Between two armies, the peace that Shalom is referring to is the wholeness of creation, the reverberating sense of rootedness and connectedness and coherence as the world was meant to be. If Solomon is the man of peace, and if there's a sense in which Solomon guides the journey of the Song of Songs because at its heart Solomon represents the way of peace, then here his equivalent, his counterpart, the woman who would be most connected to Solomon as the beloved, would inevitably be herself, the Shulamite, the Shaloma, the woman of peace, the woman who in her dance is bringing together the beauty and coherence and wholeness. Now, if I haven't lost you, here's what I'm trying to say. In the Song of Songs, peace, the Shalom, the Shalom between man and woman is the vision of how creation can be restored how creation can be redeemed by God. If in the beginning, man and woman are together in the garden and they are naked and unashamed, then in the glimpses we get of the Song of Songs of return through intimacy to the garden, of return to togetherness, you find the dance of Solomon and Shulamite, the dance of the man of peace with the woman of peace. And as they come together, in these rare glimpses we get and i realize they are often so rare and so few and so far and in between but when when a marriage truly culminates in the mutual covenant of belonging in the one saying to the other i am my beloved and my beloved is mine what you're glimpsing is this way of peace the way of shalom the way of creation restored that rather than those curses which took place after the fall of Adam and the fall of Eve, the curse in which the woman is told her desire will be for the man, and yet he will rule over her, that there will be this futility and frustration inevitably taking place. Marriage can, it can, it certainly does not always, in fact, you could even say it rarely does accomplish what it's intended. And yet the hope, the possibility in the Song of Songs is that the man of peace could return to the woman of peace and that together in their belonging to each other, the way of shalom can once again begin to be established through their loves in the lives of their family, in the lives of their community and reverberate out from the garden of their love to be shared with those around them. No wonder the beloved is going to say in the next chapter, how beautiful are your feet in sandals, O noble daughter. And then he's going to continue and just lay out once more his passion and delight, how much he loves his lover and how beautiful and pleasant and desirable she is to him. And the beloved is going to say, oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine and the scent of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. And she's going to respond, it goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. And then... In Song of Songs chapter 7 verse 10, she's going to say again after this loving description of her beloved, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. This is the dance of love. This is the image of belonging. This is what we need so much more than consent. Consent speaks to our fears. Consent speaks. To remaining in control of our own desires. Consent speaks to a sexuality in which we retain full possession of our bodies because we are understandably afraid of what it would look like to entrust possession of our body to another. But sex in the Song of Songs instead is meant to be the fulfillment, the culmination of the commitment to belonging to another. The full, wholehearted embrace. And that's the logic of covenant in marriage. That you shouldn't do this risky act of relinquishing yourself to the possession of another until you are ready to covenant yourself to them until they are ready to covenant themselves to you. And yet, I'm struck that as much as we say we want freedom when it comes to sex, as much as we say we want to just express our sexuality in whatever way we desire, I'm struck that the great love stories, even the movies of the last few generations, all seem to hold this longing for some sort of covenanted commitment and belonging to the other. I could point you in a number of places. One place to point is that James Bond, without giving anything away, in his most recent iteration, cannot help even this iconic figure of misogyny and sexual vivaciousness and expressiveness with anyone that Bond pursues. In the culminating story of Daniel Craig's films, he finds himself committed, longing to belong to one woman. I'm struck by the scene in The Notebook, the scene that I remember growing up, was the scene that moved everyone to talk about the notebook, the scene in the notebook, when at the very end, the culmination of love is the elderly man lying in the same bed as his elderly wife gently passes away, the the full, beautiful commitment to the other. Why is it that we are so moved by scenes of mutual belonging? Why is it that in the great romance stories of our time, that they do not conclude with the passions of sex, but rather with the possibility of a kiss. Why is it that that story of love grips us so much? Well, in this expression, I am my beloved and my beloved is mine, most scholars have pointed out that there's really one place that this vision would be drawn from, in addition to Genesis 2 and the vision of one flesh. And that, that one place that you can actually find a Hebrew parallel in the phraseology and expression would come in God's covenant commitment to his people. So God is going to say this in Jeremiah 7:23. but this command I gave them, obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. Quite literally the same grammatical phrasing, I the possession of you and you shall be the possession of me. He's going to repeat this phrase in Jeremiah 11, verse 4 that I commanded your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace, saying, Listen to my voice, do all that I command you, so shall you be my people and I will be your God. And finally, one more time in the great culminating chapter of Ezekiel 34, where God is going to say this, and they shall know that I am the lord their god with them and that they the house of israel are my people declares the lord god what i love about this biblical theological insight is that the only way that a covenant of mutual belonging could make sense the only way in which we would be so risky as to entrust ourselves to the possession of another is if our god modeled first to us what it looked like to offer himself to the possession of his people in order that they could become his as well. This is the heart of love. This is the heart of intimacy. This is what belonging is going to require. The drama here is so palpable that it almost becomes overwhelming that the God of creation would entrust God's self to a people And then allow that people to become the very possession of God, even as God is possessed by them. And yet, you're drawn immediately to the drama of the cross, where Christ is God in the flesh, having come down, humbled himself, risked himself to the love of his people, so that he, in becoming their possession could have them for himself, have all who are drawn to him. This is so palpably difficult and even being drawn to the cross makes us see it can be so costly. Love is costly and at times love is painful. But we serve a God, we are made by a God who models to us the covenantedness of mutual belonging by first making himself vulnerable to us so that we could be possessed by him. And if you've been tracking with the drama of the Song of Songs, all of this struggle is working together to highlight a theology of sexuality, a theology of intimacy is going to involve the flame of desire, fanning this flame in which we pursue one another, we connect to the deep longing we have, that longing that's going to compel us, drive us towards each other. The theology of sexuality is going to be a struggle to see and name and praise the beauty in each other, to be drawn to each other through beauty, to allow beauty to compel us and be attended to and to be explored in the richness and fullness of our love. And yet theology of sexuality is also going to involve a struggle to resist the terrors and the fears of the night those overwhelming forces that seek to devour us in our isolation and our panic and in our anxiety. And yet, if, if we can endure, if we can see this movement through the Song of Songs, this dance between the way of peace from the man to the woman, the woman to the man, if we can see it all as the dance we are pursuing in intimacy with God, if we can ground our foundation for trust, in the covenant of entrusting God's self to us, then I believe we can find in belonging to each other the intimacy we have been longing for, that marriage, that our sexuality, that our friendships and deep covenanted bonds can become signs of God, signs of God's presence and activity with us, that as we live out our marriages in mutual belonging, as we live out our friendships, our church communities in mutual belonging to each other, as we do it in wisdom, as we do it carefully, what we begin to offer to a world that is content with consent is a sign of the radical possibility that that intimacy we've truly been longing for is actually available to us in God, if only we would entrust ourselves to him. So I pray you would consider the possibility of belonging in an age of consent. I pray you would ponder the path to intimacy and see that there is no other way. I pray that whatever fears, whatever real damages and dangers have haunted you on this road, I pray that the God who has committed himself to you would come alongside you, would show you in his passionate, diligent, patient pursuit, the very kind of entrusting and belonging that God wants to share with you. And I pray that in Jesus, you would find the sign of security and hope that whatever costs your body has borne in your own search for intimacy, that the one who died for you, naked and bruised and scarred, is the one who commits to offer you that new life in the garden of love, even now. This has been John Perrine with The Burning Word. Until next time, grace and peace.